Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome, wanderer. Hast thou the flower there? Hi. There it is. I pretty give it me. I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, where oxlips and the nodding violet grows, quite overcanopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk roses and with eglantine. There sleeps Titania sometime of the night, lulled in these flowers with dances and delight, and there the snake throws her enameled skin, weed wide enough to wrap a fairy in. And with the juice of this, I'll streak her eyes and make her full of hateful fantasies. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. You have joined us for Act 2 of A Midsummer Night's Dream. This is The Plays The Thing, your source for all things Shakespeare. I am joined once again by Ian Andrews, Emily Andrews, Heidi White, welcome all three of you back to the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Tim. Good to be here. Oh, it's nice to have you here, Heidi. <laughs> um, so last week we talked a little bit about, um, you know, our first impressions of Midsummer Night's Dream, but we had not met any magic until this act. And we heard in that opening audio a little exchange between Oberon and Robin, also known as Puck, in which Oberon says, I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, where oxlips in the nodding violet grows, quite over-canopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk roses, and with eglantine. So here we are, Heidi, in the green world, the world that we have kind of encountered in several of Shakespeare's plays. Um, my question first to you, Heidi, what is how... 
is this green world different than some of the other green worlds that we have encountered? This is probably the Midsummer Night's Dream green world is probably the most characteristic of all of Shakespeare's, the one that is the you know, the platonic form of the green world, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the the ideal. It's a magical place populated by supernatural creatures that are uh, mostly benevolent, but also have a dash of mischief, right? A little bit of spice. <laughs> They're a little Some bit tricksters. of salty benevolence, I guess. <laughs> salty benevolence. I like it. Um, and that they, they form a secondary plot to the story, right? Um, We have with the mechanicals, uh, who we met Bottom and Quince and so forth, uh, they're like the low plot, right? We've got the highborn human characters, and then we've got the low, that were the main plot, then we've got the low plot, and then we've got the secondary fairy plot, which this is actually pretty rare in Shakespeare, but uh, they are, they're, it almost in Midsummer feels to me a little bit like they're secondary plot does actually become very important and interwoven with the main plot, but also provides a little bit of setting. Uh, it, it tells us what the green world here is like, um, mm. that, that it's populated by characters like this that have, that are almost like God and goddesses. They are a yeah. God and a goddess and they have that kind of, um, Greek feel to them. I mean, obviously there's mm. Theseus and Hippolyta, so we know what age we know we're in a classical age. But the main characters almost feel like Renaissance leading men and women. And so here mm-hmm. we have a very Greek and supernatural world. Um, and you know, it's been portrayed in different ways. I think the least successful way that this green world is portrayed on stage and screen is as as a um kind of like a scary nightmarish place. I've seen some mm-hmm. productions that have tried to do that, but it just doesn't work in my opinion. It really and, and needs why, to have kind of a delightful fairy-like feel to it. Draped yeah, in I was flowers say, and all kind of that kind of thing. Why does the nightmare type of setting not work for this green world? I think because it has an element of delight and whimsy to it. And it really yeah. needs to. Yeah. Do you guys agree with that, Emily and Ian? Yeah, I think so. And the actions of the god and goddess towards the human beings are intended to be benevolent, even if they are <laughs> haphazard. <laughs> yeah, and I think it, it also kind of provides uh, a little bit of a contrast to the authority figures from the world outside the green mm-hmm. world. Um, we we talked about in the last episode a little bit how um, how the is, is he a king or a duke? I can't remember the the leading authority's title. Um, I think he's a duke. I think he's a duke. Yeah, Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. another Shakespeare thing. Dukes are everywhere. And that's Um, not very classical. No, it's not. (laughs) But so, yeah, I think the contrast you bring up is good. It did remind me of of Homeric gods uh, out in the green world. In sharp contrast to the duke from from Athens, who doesn't care about the fortunes of any of these people. Right? They're they're sort of pawns, and um, so I do think there's a contrast there. A real quick plot reminder for those who are like, I'm following along with the play, but wait, what exactly happens in this act? So as I said, this is where we see the magic for the first time. And the magic is kind of led by these warring deities, Oberon and Titania. 
the king and the queen of the fairies, they've been quarreling before the play began over this young boy. I kind of think of their meeting in this act as sort of like a showdown between two quarreling rock stars in their <laughs> entourages, you know? They meet on stage, they're both like loaded up with all their adoring fans, and they just can't occupy the same stage, same space for very it's long. It's kind of a rap battle. I mean, they both go to philosophizing. It is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. That's it's a rap battle with like all of the flowers of the garden kind <laughs> yeah. of as our primary right. rhyme points. It's great. Yeah. It's fantastic. So coming out of this, Oberon, King of the Fairies, orders Puck. And I'll want to spend some time on Puck during this podcast. He orders Puck, otherwise known as Robin Goodfellow, to get this special flower that makes people fall in love with the next creature they see. That When we hear this, we should know, oh, the couples that we met in Act 1 are going to get in trouble because we ju- you just know they're going to be anointed with this flower, this flower juice, this magical flower juice. And that certainly is going to happen in this play. Um, but really, Oberon's intention is to have Titania fall in love with basically some sort of wild animal and to use that infatuation against her so he can get the boy back. But Demetrius... And Helena, who we met in Act One, enter. Helena is desperately trying to get with Demetrius. And Puck returns after getting this flower. And Oberon, having heard a conversation between Demetrius and Helena, is like, you know what? I'm going to have Demetrius fall in love with Helena. This seems like a good idea. So Puck then is sent off to find the Athenian and apply some flowers magic nectar to his eyes and that's you know what puck is enlisted to do later lysander and hermia enter they fall asleep nearby and a mistake is made puck thinks he has found the athenian man and he anoints the eyes of lysander and now meanwhile just a little bit later demetrius and helena uh arrive demetrius leaves helena behind Um, Lysander awakes, sees Helena, immediately falls in love with her, and she mistakes his courtship for mockery and tries to get away from him. After they exit, the abandoned Hermia awakes from a nightmare and goes in search of her beloved Lysander. So I, even going through that little synopsis, want to take pity on myself for saying, the play is confusing. It's confusing. I think this is the reason that I always get, I'm always like, wait, what is going on in this play? And it's because everybody's swapping places even more than most Shakespeare plays. So if you're like me and you just have like character dyslexia, Midsummer Night's Dream, approach with care and caution. That's that's my word. <laughs> also, Shakespeare has a, a perverse delight, I think, in naming his female characters words that sound the same. <laughs> yeah. How are you yep. supposed to tell your Helena's from your Hermias? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. I think that's the point. I think that's. I was just going to ask that, yes, Heidi. Yeah, I think that's the point. That it, it to us as the audience, like we're rooting for Hermia and Lysander, right? We're rooting, and and our heartstrings are pulled a little bit on behalf of of Helena in this 
uh, in, in this act. And we particularly want to punch Demetrius right in the throat. At least I do. <laughs> um, but I, they're interchangeable. It doesn't matter who's in love with who. That's the whole point, right? Like it's, it's love is blind. It's something that happens to you. You are a victim of it. And it is at the caprice of the gods and of your own hearts. And these two pairs of lovers are interchangeable now, literally on screen, as we've already seen them um, in in a more metaphorical, I guess, kind of way in, in Act One. So I I just think that Shakespeare is messing with us a little bit like mm. hey do you care who marries who do you care who's in love with who because clearly the god of the story doesn't he's trying to do good and he gets it wrong and now we're all laughing so what is love right <laughs> baby don't the hurt cynics yeah, yeah. sorry the cynics now we're Heidi. only in act two <laughs> this is the complication of the play <laughs> but but he's raising maybe we some are... questions and in that question, we talked about this a little bit in Act One. That question seems like he's really developing it here. Like, mm -hmm. love at first sight is this wonderful stage device that occurs all throughout Shakespeare's uh, comedies. And it seems like he's, he's begging the question more now by making these characters so, for lack of a better word, interchangeable. He's kind of poking fun at this idea of love at first sight. So my my question for you guys, Ian, I'm going to come to you. Are we are we supposed to doubt love at first sight based on the evidence of this play? That man, that's a great question. I I will protect myself in answering it by saying we're not done with the play yet. So verdicts right. drawn now are drawn uh, potentially in error. But uh, I think Shakespeare has a big bleeding warm ooey gooey heart on him i really do <laughs> i think his his impulse always is to affirm the truly human and love at first sight is a human thing um mm. we fall in love with our with our eyes first mm. and so i don't think he is attempting to criticize that or um or to do anything more than poke gentle fun at how we all are right he's never standing across from his characters and saying this is how some of you are you should get your acts together he's almost yeah. always saying isn't it great to be a human being don't we do it like this all the time and so i do think it's funny though that he uses these god figures um in much the same way that that homer would right they're they are gods and they have power but they're capricious and they're as human as we are as well and so the best plans go awry i mean uh, the juice from the flower is intended to be an evil prank on, on um, Titania, right? Right. And and the fact that it's now involved with the humans' lives at all is a gesture of benevolence. It's goodwill mm. on the part of the god, and um, he doesn't know he's about to send everybody for a <laughs> wild loop through the forest. So I do think he's um, he's chuckling. Shakespeare's chuckling here, rather than yeah. trying to get us to to doubt um, to doubt love. Hmm. Emily. Yeah, I really like that. I I agree with that opinion. And it's fun to have the contrast of Oberon and Titania in the background as a longer term love affair. Uh, and the prank that Oberon chooses to pull is to have Titania fall in love herself, even mm -hmm. though he is her lord and master. Um, yeah. So there's a, yeah, I like it. 
um, we're beginning to see in this act um, jealousy. Hang on one sec. Um, jealousy shows up is going to show up pretty heavily in this play, right? Everybody's kind of crossed with everybody else. Um, are, are, is there more to jealousy than uh, a, a, a play complication? Are, are mm. we supposed to take a deeper a deeper message about the jealousy? Because right now it's just kind of. A, a little bit of a clown show. Oh, everybody's mixed up with everybody else. Oh, it's so funny. Oh, he, she used to love him and now she loves him. Um, but is, is the, the raging jealousy actually underscoring this point that, hey, maybe love at first sight is, like you said, Ian, a wonderful thing to be celebrated. It's part of the human condition. But one of the grave complications is the jealousy that ensues. Hmm. Well, it's reflected in the seasons as Oberon and Titania meet. We're told that everything is out of joint, that mm. it's winter when it's supposed to be summer and mm. summer when it's supposed to be winter. And when Shakespeare reflects that kind of disorder in nature, it usually does signal something being significantly wrong with the world. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about Macbeth when he's mm -hmm. contemplating or actually when he's marching toward the murder of the king, the stones underneath his feet begin to prate. There's this sense of nature is in revolt to kind of like the immoral, immoral deed that, that Macbeth is contemplating. We see that all over the place in Shakespeare. And it's, it's a hard translation point, I think, to our world. Mm -hmm. like we're so used to kind of just thinking, um, what is nature? Nature is kind of atoms in space, you know, and that is not the view of the romantic, excuse me, the Renaissance rhetoricians. It's not the view of the classical world. There's a strong sense that nature is a, an intricate and organized cosmos, and it's impacted by the deeds, good and bad, of human beings. And I think it sh it's kind of shows up in this play with what you're saying, Emily, mm -hmm. it's topsy turvy. Everything's right. kind of gone awry here. But I think the thing that's interesting is unlike Macbeth, Macbeth is a very, very moral play. There's a mm -hmm. gross injustice that's been done in this play. It's really light. Mm -hmm. It's really mm -hmm. playful, but things can still go awry the seasons can still flip-flop yeah i think that's right i think to your point tim and kind of tangential or adjacent to what you were saying emily it's the women in this play that have that so far have these these darker depths to them and when i say dark mm. i don't I don't mean that they themselves have a darkness inherent to them and that they're being portrayed as dark, but they're suffering the most, right? The play opens with Hippolyta in a forced marriage. And when Theseus, I've won her with my sword, right? And, uh, and then uh, we see Helena as such a... Um, wounded soul in act two like her plight is real it's 
It's actually not funny. And then at the end, Hermia is just had this horrible nightmare of having her heart eaten out by a snake, right? And meanwhile, there's all of these playful men all around them that are just kind of like romping around and putting love potion juice without any regard for the consequences of that, right? Same Mm -hmm. with Demetrius. And in a sense, same with Lysander, that they have this lightheartedness to them, uh, whereas the women kind of take the brunt of it. Because I Mm -hmm. think that so much of this play is about power dynamics. And I'm not somebody who finds power dynamics everywhere and every work of literature. I'm definitely not a, you know, Marxist scholar or anything like that. <laughs> but this is a play about power. And, mm. um, or at least that's one of the main contemplations in it. And we see, and Shakespeare loves his strong women, but he also loves to make, he also loves throughout the comedies to, uh, to craft uh, men who are not yet worthy of the women and have to and have to come have to rise to the women in their life, and we do see that in this play. And I think that dynamic of jealousy plays into that. And there is an undercurrent of serious contemplation in this play, which is why I think it. But it's also lighthearted and delightful. And Shakespeare excels at that. And this is probably his first really great comedy. This is probably pretty early. Mm. Um, I, I think so. I think that Midsummer is where he takes the the change between his early, you know, if he had died after writing, you know, say Love's Labor's Lost, he would have been only read by specialists in Elizabethan drama. But with Midsummer, he becomes a master, I think, of the form because there's this um juxtaposition of very serious uh issues with just like this draped with these flowers in the green world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes, I really like that, Heidi. That makes me wonder what, if if there is some societal commentary going on, like as you say, one of the major issues in the play is power and an abuse of power. What is he holding up as its alternative? Like what's the mm-hmm. remedy for it? Right. And you could say, yeah, it's the green world, but what, what undergirds the green yeah. world? Well, the green it, world is just as complicated as Athens. It is right. And the, and so the, the glue, I think that he's advocating is love, love, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's what we're after. And so I, I think the, maybe where the play jumps off into the question is, we have these abuses of power. Um, but how it proceeds is, so what is the nature of this love that's supposed to fix the power dynamics? How does that look between men and women? How does that look between the high and the low, between the powerful and the powerless? Um, and I think that's, like you were saying, that's where Shakespeare shines. Man, he has such a deep understanding of love. Even though we're in Act 2, Ian, do we have any seeds that are being planted for what that vision of love might be by Act 5? Man, that's a hard question, Tim. You're really yeah. bringing them today. Um, I don't know, because we've just had the the flower squeezing incident. Right. Right. We've just had it. And, and what we've seen from Helena maybe looks like some kind of constancy. Um, mm. It doesn't matter how many times Demetrius says, get out of here, don't follow me. Right? I, I don't want you here, you're not welcome. <laughs> she still chases him, right? So maybe that's a part of it, is, is constancy rather than inconstancy. But in the in the immediate wake of the flower squeezing episode or incident, um, I'm not sure that we have a real great read on what, what quality of love, what kind of love he's going to hold up just yet. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But I think we do have, I think we do have a sense that even though 
there is this interchangeability that we've been talking about. We also know that the right people aren't in love with each other right now, right? We True. Mm, yes. We, we know that. And so we like that's the thing that's at stake is is right. and so I think to your point, Ian, that Shakespeare has given us this complication, which is in many ways about power. And and it's very clear to us that the thing that we're waiting for is the right people to fall in love. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. I love that it's chosen, right. not dictated, maybe. Right. Yeah. I want to talk about the character of Puck. But before we do that, I want to play a little audio from this act of Puck, also known as Robin Goodfellow. And then I want to come back and ask why Puck is such a favorite among, I think, especially actors, but also audiences. But first, let's listen to Robin as he searches for the Athenian who he is supposed to anoint with this flower nectar. Through the forest have I gone, but Athenian found I none on whose eyes I might approve this flower's force in stirring love. Night and silence. Who is here? Weeds of Athens he doth wear. This is he, my master said, despised the Athenian maid. And here the maiden sleeping sound on the dank and dirty ground. Pretty soul, she does not lie near this lack love, this kill courtesy. Churl upon thy eyes I throw All the power this charm doth owe When thou wakest, let love forbid Sleep his seat on thy eyelid So awake when I am gone For I must now to Oberon That was Puck seeking the Athenian And then leaving So awake when I am gone For I must now to Oberon Puck is a is a pretty famous character in the pantheon of Shakespeare characters. I Galen and I watched um, Dead Poet Society, which I'm not sure if you if you guys have seen Dead mm-hmm. Poet Society, but one of our main characters, the young man who's kind of caught between what his father wants for him and what his teacher's kind of aspirations for him are, plays. Puck, I believe, in A Midsummer Night's Dream against his father's wishes, and it causes this big crisis in the movie. And I think they chose that character for him very deliberately because it's the antithesis of the kind of formalness and rigidity and capital T tradition of the school where this young man is attending. So my question for you guys is, what is it about Puck that we find so endearing, delightful, charming. What is it? I think Emily should answer this. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I'm thinking that he's kind of a cast, not in a scary sort of way, but maybe in a human relatable kind mm-hmm. of way. Mm-hmm. In this act, we saw he's the he's the servant of the god, and he is given a mission to play out the god's will but he messes it up (laughs) so like he stands in between the god and his desire and and is a a complication in that process and i think that 
it's charming to, for whatever reason, I don't know that I know why, but that chaos factor is charming to us for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that a figure of chaos in the world that we live in might be a little bit less exciting and appealing and unnerving than it would have been in a more, I'm going to say a more formal society, Mm -hmm. like the one that Shakespeare came from. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think it feels to us like we, we are living in this time of like incredible change, right? Just incredible technological advancements, mostly for good, but oftentimes for harm and so, and oftentimes for confusion. And I'm thinking about the Joker character in the Christopher Nolan Batman. I mean, he was, Joker was chaos incarnate. And I think part mm-hmm. of the reason that movie kind of sticks with us a little bit is because he's an incarnation of our fears, of kind of like a modern fear that mm-hmm. we are drifting into chaos. Things that felt really solid are not solid anymore and the Joker is kind of like an embodiment, an incarnation of what chaos looks like, you know, if we don't have some great hero to kind of combat him. So, so I love Puck, but I wonder if his appeal might diminish during an age like ours that is, in so many ways, an incredible time to live, and in so many ways, such a bewildering time to live. Does that make sense? Yes. Is Puck losing losing his appeal a little bit, Heidi? I'm really curious about something you said a couple of minutes ago, Tim. You said that he's a favorite for actors. Why mm-hmm. do actors want to play Puck? I'm not an actress, and so this is a real question. Yeah. I th- think it's because by acting Puck, you can kind of do what you want to do, mm. but society kind of frowns on it you know mm-hmm. even though even though we're kind of like a low we don't we don't have a lot of rigidity in society you know traditional manners and mores are kind of you know they've they're ebbing a little bit even still we all have human beings um expect other human beings to act in a certain way and puck just says i don't care i just don't care mm-hmm. i'm going to do whatever i want to do and i have the supernatural powers to do it you know I'm just going to let it rip. And I think, I think especially for a high school student, it's a really appealing prospect to play. So it seems like then Puck maybe embodies the spirit of the age then of our age. I was going to say he's chaos, but he's also the one who, who throws a wrench in the gears of the system, right? He he sticks it to the man. Yep. Yeah, Yeah. I was thinking along those lines too, Emily, that, that um, there's freedom, ultimate freedom, for Puck, because like you said, Tim, he doesn't care what anybody thinks and he has supernatural power to do whatever he wants. And that's really appealing. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder if, if we're reading differently now than they would have been in Shakespeare's era, um, because our entire society is constructed to teach us that myth as a fact of our own lives. 
you are free to do whatever you want. Mm. All you lack is the discipline to go out and do it, right? Um, it, it, whereas a, a peasant, you know, paying his his penny or whatever to see this play, uh, man, his his stars were set and they weren't moving. There was no right. upward mobility in that society. And so I wonder if they look at themselves as acted upon by the pucks of the world and they read him differently then, whereas we all read it now and we want to be the pucks of our own of our own world. Yeah. 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 You think of the farmer who must milk his cows three times a day or whatever, and there's no chaos is the enemy in a situation like that. Chaos right. leads to, um, at a minimum, poverty and the death of livestock, which means, you know, more poverty. And so, so yeah, maybe Puck in a in his playfulness is kind of fun to entertain for a farmer who pays a penny for the play, but could never actually live life in that way. And we think it's actually, and maybe it is actually open to us, a life kind of like puck. We're going to be the trickster. We're going to play along. We're, we're going to, we're going to play around. We're not going to get caught. So yeah, I, I think he's, I think he's a fascinating character and his, maybe his importance can change according to how close we are to chaos in our everyday life. I think also he would have been a very familiar figure to an Elizabethan audience because he's so grounded in medieval folk tales, mythology, fairy tales, right? This kind of character is the sprite, the goblin that, right? The, the agent of chaos that, you know, if you, go outside, Puck will put you in his black bag and take you away, right? Like that, <laughs> yeah. um, like that inhabited the medieval imagination the same way it does to children who are being raised as they should be with fairy tales and folk tales, right? Um, but in the medieval, especially in the high medieval mind, by the time of Shakespeare's Renaissance life, like this had changed, but there was a time when this, I mean, the myth of, of, of a putt character was believed in, like widespread mm. among, ab among Western European peasants, right? So um, this, this isn't that far off of, Shakespeare's time is not that far off from a time that really believed that the, uh, you know, the woods were haunted by spirits. Um, and there was this whole kind of third realm of creatures um, that were, that, that inhabited the the earth, and mm. um, and so along with that kind of what you guys are saying about this kind of archetypal, you know, union sense of of the agent of chaos, there was also like an actual concrete inhabitation, you know, of of um, of characters like this that that these people would have been raised around. It's fully grounded in medieval thought. Yeah. Hmm. Well, the yeah. kind of chaos that he is is important too, because what, when he lists or when it's described what he does, it's things like he takes out the stool from under a housewife or he makes someone <laughs> spill their soup over their front. It's harmless it's acts mm -hmm. of things that you would find funny if it happened to your friend um, that remind us that we're dependent humans. And, um, 
the, the those little moments of chaos that just give you a glimpse of the fact that you're not in control. Not the really scary kinds. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not joker kinds of just kind of like absolute madness roaming through the streets, but kind of chaotic evil. Oh, puck, you <laughs> rascal. Yeah. I just He's more like I chaotic neutral for all you. <laughs> he's a kid. He's yeah. chaotic yeah. neutral. Characters, right? <laughs> Wait, oh, I just agreed to that because I thought it, there's a there's a Dungeon and Dragons character named. Well, no, when you play Dungeons and Dragons, you pick like a moral code that you have, and oh. so you can I be lawful you know good or lawful evil or chaotic <laughs> good, chaotic evil, and neutral. So um, how, do you, how do you know this? Because my kids, Are you a D&D person? No, that is a firm no. I can't play anything. I can't even play Yahtzee. I get bored. Like, I, I don't play games. Um, but my kids went through Dungeons and Dragons like two years during the pandemic when we had um, mm. with some with neighbor kids and they would I mean they would play for entire afternoons and so I know me some Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> uh, but he is but so Puck would be a character like in Dungeons and Dragons who is in who is uh, chaotic um, not lot versus lawful but isn't good or evil he's neutral morally neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty typical for the, uh, for the medieval, um, kind of chaos characters within their fairy tales and folk tales. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of games, Galen and I, Galen is very close to giving birth. And so we are spending more and more time at home. It's kind of less fun to go out. And we have been playing this game called Agricola. Have you guys heard of Agricola? I have heard no. of this game. Have you played Agricola? I have not played it. No. Galen loves it. Translation, she's also really good at it because <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. played with her friends a lot. It's like, do you know the game Settlers of Catan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like if you took Settlers of Catan and injected it with some sort of steroid. <laughs> it's some sort of like, like, early medieval capitalist steroid where you're kind of like <laughs> amassing, you know, uh, you're tilling fields and you're amassing sheep and cows. I mean, it's so complicated and it's really, it's really fun, but I, I get beat down so bad every time we play. And I think she's even kind of playing with one hand behind her back. Anyway, <laughs> welcome to, uh, like Game Corner with the the Plays the Things crowd. (laughs) So in this play, we're about to kind of turn a corner. Our third act is kind of the peak of um, the the chaos is going to kind of reach a zenith peak in act three. And then we will start after that moving toward a little bit of resolution. So you guys, what should we be looking forward to in Act Three? What are the, what are the complications? What are the love triangles and squares that we need to kind of keep an eye on as we go forward? I think we're looking for more complication in the future. We know that. I mean, Act Three is notorious for this. All of our seasoned uh-huh. Shakespearean audiences and actors and critics in the audience listening. Um, Act Three is a wild ride, and we we have three plots here. We have Titanium and Oberon. We've got the 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 two sets of lovers, and we've got the mechanicals that we haven't seen for a while. We've got Bottom right. and Co. Um, and so I think in Act Bottom Three, Bottom and Co. Yeah, we're, we're looking, new band name. I call yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. 
I feel like that could go awry. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we're looking for the interweaving of these three threads and then there and puck thrown in there. Right. Right. Ian, Emily, what else are we looking for in act three? Tell I, us. I, Tell I agree us, with please. Heidi that it's going to get, it's going to get more complicated before it gets simpler. Um, yeah. I am the most excited, I think, for Bottom and Co. <laughs> I want to, I want to, because, because I like, I think one of my favorite elements of Shakespeare is the chorus. Um, I, I love the, the commentary that he throws in and how humorous it is generally, and, and yet how insightful. And I really do feel we'll get some of that from, from Bottom and Company. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's going to be a good thing to watch. To that point, it's, I think, not, if you didn't, know what was going to happen in the play there actually would still be a question of whether or not this forest is sinister or or benevolent Mm, mm. and Oberon his intention with putting the love potion on Titania is that she would fall in love with something like a a leopard or a boar something violent and um, intense but yeah the next act might help set the tone in that department as well. <laughs> That's a perfect foreshadowing. That's a per- yeah, exactly reminding us that it's a comedy. It's not some destructive beast. It yeah. might be something kind of funny. Yep. We'll have to wait and see. Well done, Emily. Um, quickly, tell me, Ian, Emily, Heidi, what is going on in the podcast world that you are most involved in? Ian, what's going on with you guys? Yeah, so we we host two shows at Center for Lit, uh, one of which is in progress. We're reading Victor Hugo's Les Miserables and uh, having a great time doing it. It's called How to Eat an Elephant, and you can get that wherever you are wherever you like to get your podcasts. Um, the other is Bibliophiles, which is sort of our flagship show. And we're between seasons. Um, I can report here, though, this is a sneak peek for those of you that, that may want to listen. The next season will be on young adult fiction. Uh, and or juvenile fiction will open with a little bit of a meditation on whether those are indeed the same genre um, and how they came to be confused in recent years. And it will have much the flavor of a book recommendation and long form discussion. So I'm really excited to, to bring that out as well. Great. Heidi. Well, Tim, as my partner in crime, Tim and I are working together over at the Close Reads Podcast Network. Uh, you can find us where you get your podcasts or at www.substack.closereads.com. And we are working on a lot of shows right now. We just did a one-off show on Pygmalion, um, George Bernard Shaw, and we brought a special guest uh, and we're about to start Diary of a Country Priest. Are you on that one, Tim? I'm not on that one. You're not. So no. Tim's going to sit that one out because he's about to have a baby. Um, Yay, and Tim. play a lot of that one game that you just said. Agricola. 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 Yeah. Lose a lot of that one game. Yeah, right. I'm going to lose a lot of Agricola. Yeah. That's right. Well, then you're going to be sad and not want to be on a podcast. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, so that's, that's what's going on over there. So we do have a lot of literary reading and community opportunities for you all. If you did not listen to the one-off podcast before we began Midsummer Night's Dream, Act One, I did a standalone podcast with our friend Sarah Jane Bentley about the question whether or not the man Shakespeare wrote the plays that are attributed to him. And I 
I am getting more feedback about <laughs> that podcast than I have, I think, from anything that we've done on this show. And there's a lot of people that were me two months ago. They're like, how could you possibly take this seriously? That this, you know, that Shakespeare, Shakespeare did not write Shakespeare. And it's a fun podcast you, and we that are was delicately put. <laughs> that was delicately put you want to stay friends with us all i can tell <laughs> that's right that's right i really do i'm listening to myself talk and i'm just like dude you were the guy that you used to lambast six <laughs> months ago you would if you heard yourself you would be snickering behind your own back but anyway i'm entertaining the possibility as much as it breaks my heart to even consider it, I'm entertaining the possibility. Not in this Christian home. <laughs> Not in this Christian home. I cannot stand. I cannot recant. That's right. That's right. Unless reason convinces me and the Holy Scriptures convince me otherwise. You need yeah. to get the James Shapiro book. And Well, I should not say this on a podcast, but I'm going to try to get James Shapiro on the show again. He was on the show a, a year ago. And maybe I can set you straight. That'll be fun. He probably will. He probably will. I want to thank everyone for joining us. Please join us again next week for act three of Midsummer Night's Dream. And until then, as always, we wish you happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 